Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win an Advocacy Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to fight for what you believe in, but how to win. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. Welcome and thanks for listening to Episode 9 of How to Win an Advocacy Campaign. On the last episode, we had a conversation with former Yang traveling press secretary and PR whiz Eric Sanchez about advocacy communications. We talked about some useful tips for your organization and how you can improve your communications in some very easy ways. We also talked about some of Eric's most interesting projects like getting Kenny Loggins to play in his living room and making Fouch on the couch pillows in honor of Dr. Anthony Fauci. If you've not heard the episode, it is a real winner. It's a hoot. Um, And today we're going to be talking about uh, fundraising for advocacy and really breaking down how to do it effectively, how it has changed during uh, COVID and the pandemic, uh, what you need to be doing to set yourself up for success and think about a quarterly calendar. Most organizations who are working in the nonprofit advocacy space are likely deemed uh, under the tax status of a 501c3 or potentially a 501c4. And what that means is you need to raise money for your operation in the same way campaigns do, right? It would be contributions from individual donors, individual funders, uh, philanthropic organizations, and other folks who can give directly to your organization. I think most of the most important things you need to be thinking about when you're building out your fundraising program is in the same way as you're communicating to your, your audience, it is about them and not you. Right. It is going to be about the donor and and your uh, funders versus about you as an organization. The other thing I think you want to be thinking about is your different types of revenue streams that we'll get into later in the episode, but making sure you're not putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of where your money is coming from. So, Joe, what are some things that organizations or our listeners need to be thinking about when building out their fundraising operations? Well, so whoever is raising money for an organization, whether that's a low-dollar fundraiser or a high-dollar fundraiser, someone who's a volunteer, someone who's on staff, they really need to understand the mission of the organization and be able to explain it clearly. The organization itself needs to understand the mission and be able to explain it as well. You think that that would be understood, but I'm telling you, I have been through this where making sure that people are clear about the goals and the mission of the organization and how to explain what that is and how to get people vested in, it takes time. It's a building block that sometimes people miss. And I think one of the the easiest ways to figure this out is if you work on an organization, if you work in an organization, if you work on their board, right, pick up the phone, call a few friends and ask them for money. If they're willing to give you money, you know, you've got something. If you can explain why, if the close people closest to you are not willing to write a check to this organization, you probably need to work on the pitch. So Ways to build this fundraising capacity and to really get that going is you need to look at your existing contacts for guidance and advice. You need to go to board members who serve on the board of other organizations where they have experienced fundraising and learn from your board, learn from people around your organization. And then you need to start building your list Thinking about potential donors, uh, I like the saying of building the house with the rocks around your feet. Go to people that you know and really start building those that 
infrastructure of people who can help engage and raise money for the organization, who care about it, who care about the mission. Make sure you're continuing to work on that pitch and you'll get there and you'll really be able to explain to folks why this organization is important. So again, coalitions can be a source of actual individuals to join a board to help fundraise. Maybe it's someone who cycled off the board of another organization. You can get them to come over to your organization. Maybe it's content marketing, putting out content that talks about what you're doing and getting people to sign up to an email list or do advocacy and then move through a funnel of engagement to really start raising money for your organization. So Martine, once an organization has a fundraising operation set up, what are some of the best practices they should know about? Yeah, I think to, to reiterate what you said about the messaging piece of it, think of your donors and your stakeholders as another target audience when you're crafting your message, right? So if you're crafting your message because you're running a campaign, because you're building your organization, right? You're talking to legislators, you're talking to your community, you're talking to influencers, et cetera you're going to be changing the message, right? Depending on who you're talking to, your donors, your funders, your investors are going to be that same thing, right? You have to figure out what is important to them. And I think one of the most important tools you have in your fundraising toolkit, right, is your ask or your pitch. And you want to figure out what works. And that's going to be in the same way that you test digital and email and your messaging to hone in. You want to experiment with your asks as well, right? What data points are you highlighting? Uh, which, in what ways are you asking them and how are you asking them, right? What information are you giving them? And figure out what is resonating with your donors versus what is not, because not every donor is going to be the same. Yeah, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. Tell a story. People love story. We're wired for stories. That story of how you got involved in the organization, how you learned about it, why the mission is so important, telling that story, personalizing it, that is a good way to raise money. So really think of that storytelling. Listen to you know our episode on storytelling. Um, I think that can help you. Definitely. And I think that goes to research, right? Which is the next really important best practice is understanding why your donor gives is going to be critically important to upping the chances that they're actually going to donate to your campaign, to your organization, right? It'll prevent you from wasting time and resources on folks who don't donate, right? So there, there are a number of different ways in which you can set up systems to figure out this information of who's given to other organizations that are similar to you in the past, who has a uh, fundraising or donor history, right, that you can fall onto. That's going to make them much more likely to give to your organization, your cause, your campaign, if they have already have a history of doing that, right? But you also want to think about who are they, what kind of interests do they have, right? If you have a organization that is dedicated to uh, reproductive justice rights, right? You may be thinking about where are pockets of individuals who may be interested in reproductive justice, right? If you were looking at environmentally focused organizations, right? You may think about who are folks who are engaging in the environment right now, bikers, hikers, campers, right? Like people who have recently bought RVs because we're in quarantine, right? My parents, um, right? And thinking about would they be a potential donor because they are enjoying these things in their day-to-day -day life? How do you connect it to the donor, right? And so thinking about all of those different pieces of research are going to be super, super helpful. And then you also want to make sure in terms of best practices, right, is that you're prepared. You want to be prepared with the information your donor may be asking for even before you speak with them, right? You should have a one-pager or some talking points that you're able to send about your organization, your work, 
where the money is going to go, right? How, how specific can you be in terms of allowing the donor to understand what they are going to be contributing to and what they're going to be investing in? Um, and also, obviously, remember to thank them, whether they give you money or not, thank them at, at the very least for their time. Um, but Joe, when it comes to making the ask, what advice do you have for fundraisers who now are probably on the phone or on a Zoom, right, with potential donors? Um, and it's time to pop the question, what should they be thinking about? So when I first started out working in politics, uh, Len Lucci, who worked with me in my first campaign and has been a friend for a really long time, told me this very simple method, which is called the RAT method, which is reason, amount, and time. And that has been part of my fundraising, whether it's been for politics or for advocacy ever since then. And it's really, really easy to remember. Reason, the reason why people should give, the amount, which is the specific dollar amount you're asking for, and when you need the check by, the time. So reason, amount, and time. Every ask has to have those three components. So if you can remember that, you can give a really good fundraising pitch. The other thing that I've learned is to pause after you ask people for money. One of the ways that I do this, because I used to be horrible about this, because I talk a lot. You've learned this from this podcast. So one of the things that I would do is put a glass of water next to me. And when I would ask people for money, I would take a sip of the water. The bigger the ask, the bigger the glass of water. So I would try and drink as much water as I could until I heard a response back. You want to program yourself not to cut people off and let them respond to your ask. You want to make sure that that ask is based on research, right? Having an understanding of what they've given in the past. You can do some of that. You can talk to other campaigns who might have worked with this donor in the past to get a greater understanding of what this person has given. And you also want to make sure that you don't limit yourself based on your own personal resources and biases, which is a mistake I think a lot of people make, which is, hey, I don't have a lot of money, but I'm asking someone else for more money than I have. Therefore, I should ask them for the same amount I can give. Not necessarily true. And I will tell you, in my experience, people have never been offended by being asked for too much money. They've been offended when you ask them for too little money. And so I would say, really think about that. Be thoughtful about your ask. Give them plenty of time. And then if somebody says no, right, have a conversation about what the barrier is, right? Why? Was it that, you know, just ask a few questions. Is the mission of the organization something you agree with or you want to be a part of? Did I ask you for too much money? I mean, those are all things that you can learn from. So try and use this as a learning opportunity. But the other thing is don't be defensive in asking questions, right? If there are barriers that come up, say, hey, should I ask you again in a few months? Should I come back to you? Is there another way that you can contribute? Don't take no for an answer. Just don't, if they say no, don't hang up the phone and say goodbye, try and engage. So those are ways that I have really built rapport and engagement over time. Um, so Martine, now that, you know, we're in COVID and will be for, for a long time, how has fundraising changed? 
Definitely. I think there's a few ways in which fundraising has changed. Obviously, for a lot of organizations, events was a really huge part of your revenue stream. And that isn't happening right now, or at least not happening in the in-person way we know it, right? Galas and dinners, etc. And so you have to be thinking creatively about how do we use what we have right now and continuing, like Joe said, right, to build that personal relationship, those personal bonds, those personal touches, and and do more in-depth research on these these humans of what would make them give, particularly right now? We're going through a pandemic. A lot of people have been hit hard, but not everybody, right? So it is, I will give you the uh, the go-ahead or the, the validation that it is still okay for you to be asking for money from donors because the causes and the campaigns and the efforts in which you all are fighting for have likely not stopped, right? And, and in some cases have probably gotten worse. And so this work is still really important. So it's okay for you to continue to ask these donors for money, but you may be thinking of different ways of doing it, right? Is it doing it over the phone? Is it doing it via Zoom? Is it doing it in different ways in which you can communicate with them um, because we can't be as in person as we would like to be right now? Yeah. And I would say, think if you're doing a Zoom fundraiser, think of a cool hook for it. Maybe it's a trivia night. Maybe it's a like, I don't know, a room with goats in it. You need to think about a way that you have an interesting hook. People I'll just tell you me, I am dying to figure out a way to engage with people and get it like out of my house, even if it's virtually. So if you invite me to your goat Zoom fundraiser, I very well might show up. I'll be inundated with goat Zoom fundraiser like invites. You wait. But my point being is find something interesting. Find a way to make this not just, hey, we're going to have a Zoom and all get together, which you might get your friends to do, but have it a little bit of a hook. Make it interesting, and you'd be surprised. My bet is you're going to raise more money that way and get better engagement than you'd think. And as Joe said, right, I think offering different ways of engagement, particularly for folks who, for whatever reason, because of a pandemic or other ways, maybe unemployed, maybe supporting somebody else who was unemployed, right? Thinking of different ways in which they can they can engage, right? So instead of giving $100, can they sign up for a phone bank, right? Can they do, can they text their friends about your organization? Can they share it on social media and start building them up a ladder of engagement or as, or as Joe mentioned, an engagement funnel, right? To get them to hire assets. that hopefully when they do have the capacity, they have built such a trust and a relationship with your organization, your group, your campaign, that they're already willing to give. That's right. I mean, those are really great ideas. And uh, we're excited to hear from Joe Sangiardi, who's got a ton more ideas on this. He's an expert in advocacy fundraising, and he's going to share with us ways that he has been able to adapt to COVID-19 and what your organization should be doing to improve your quarterly engagement and fundraising. So we'll be back with Joe. And we're back. And I am joined here by a dear friend of mine, uh, Joe Sangiovardi. Thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Joe is a professional fundraiser with expertise in nonprofit advocacy and political fundraising. He currently serves as the Associate Director of Leadership Giving at the Human Rights Campaign and formerly served as the Development Director at the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Institute. In his work to advance LGBTQ equality, Joe connects equality-minded philanthropists with opportunities to make substantive impact in the fight for full legal equality for the LGBTQ community. 
as a member of that community, thank you for the work that you're doing. Happy to be doing it. Trying to just get equality for the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, right? Hello? As we jump right in here, can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into the fundraising field and why you stayed in it? Yeah. I mean, to start off, you know, I've always been involved and interested in politics. And when I was, you know, coming to graduation from college, I kept on thinking, like, what can I do? How, what kind of an impact can I make? What can I do politically? And I realized that, you know, I mean, this was a couple of years, a few years after um, Citizens United, where politics was flooding, you know, money was flooding politics. And I just kept on thinking, it's money. We've got to do, we've got to raise money to fix this system, right? Um, so I wound up getting a job in my alma mater, the University of Oklahoma, after graduation, uh, working in fundraising, because I wanted to learn the traps of it, you know, how it works, what strategies are effective. And that's really um, kind of how I've stuck with it. Um, I worked at the university for about a year and a half, and then I realized, you know, I started an LGBTQ scholarship at the university. I realized I really cared about that area, but I knew that it was time to kind of move into the political space, the advocacy space, and that's because that's where my heart really um, lived. Um, so ultimately, that's, as you mentioned earlier, um, I previously worked at the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Institute, and that's what led me there. Yeah, I mean, for uh, as we talk about, a lot of folks, their first uh, desire around doing advocacy work is not necessarily raising the money. Although, as we know, money makes the world go round, and, and it, it makes, obviously, advocacy work possible. So I'm, I am glad there are good people who are out there doing it like yourself. As our listeners are thinking about whether they're fundraising for the work that they're doing or they're working with a fundraiser, what would make a good fundraiser for advocacy? Uh, are there specific qualities or characteristics that folks should look for in a fundraiser, whether they're hiring it internally or thinking about bringing on a, a consultant? It's a good question. It's a big question. I think the the simple answer that I would always come to is find a true believer, right? I mean, you need to be somebody who believes in the work. Um, nonprofits aren't known for paying their employees well. <laughs> We're not known for having, you know, a million different resources you can use to figure things out. It, it really requires a sort of resiliency. And I think that being a true believer and really understanding what the work is and wanting to dedicate yourself to it um, is an essential part of that. So, I mean, I would say that that's the number one thing. Then it gets a little bit, uh, <laughs> I'll change gears a little bit. And beyond being a true believer, I think you have to be mentally agile enough to accept that fundraising is also a science. It's not just about caring about the work. It's about understanding that fundraising, like any other profession, is a profession. There is a science to it. There are techniques. There's experimentation. There are so many different ways you can go about it, but you really have to focus in on that. And there's this, there's this inherent tension that you want to um, deliver for the work and you want to raise the money for it, but also that you might feel like you, are, you have to get pushy, right? Or you might have to be aggressive, or you might have to make an ask that you weren't necessarily thinking of before in order to reach that goal. And I think that it's important um, when you look at fundraising through the perspective of being a science, being a profession, I think it really helps you kind of understand and frame um, the experiences that you're going through as you pursue that. Yeah, I think there has been through whether it's family or upbringing or just living in America, right, this idea of like money is taboo. Right? Like to talk about money is taboo, to ask people for money is a weird thing. We're not sort of yep. naturally raised to do these types of things. But we have no problem asking people to volunteer or go canvassing or do a phone bank, right, or show up to an event. And yet it's always the money piece that sort of gets people to hiccup. And, and I think uh, one fundraiser that I had worked with always said, 
you know, people can donate and give in different ways, right? Some people donate their time and volunteer, right? Like some people donate their networks and their connections. And some people don't have the time to do those two things so they can donate money, right? So you're just giving them the opportunity to invest, uh, which goes to that science, right? Of like, there are tactics when you're doing the field work, right? You contact a person three or four times to confirm that they're going to show up for that canvas or that phone bank, right? Yep. The same goes for fundraising. You have to figure out what that process is and what that what those techniques are. If I can add, you know, part of the going from both believing in the work and feeling for the work, that's such a strong driver for fundraisers when it comes to nonprofits. Um, but when you're able to look at fundraising as more of a science, when you get a no, it doesn't quite hurt the same, right? If, if you're purely coming at it from the experience of like doing this because it feels good or because you feel you're making a difference, uh, getting a no when you make an ask for someone to invest in your organization or your cause, that can feel so demoralizing and disruptive, right? And it can actually feel like an indictment of your self-worth and your life and how you're spending your time. But when you look at it from a science perspective, you realize, well, it takes three asks to get someone to a yes. <laughs> so you're automatically going to get several no's and you know that statistically you're going to get no's before you get to a yes, right? Yeah. And also, when you when you make an ask, you're not just asking someone for resources. You're, you know, we we think of fundraising as this like one directional sort of um, experience where I, as a fundraiser, am asking this person who might have money or does have money, you know, to invest in my cause. But we're also offering them something, right? I can't tell you the number of times where I've been reached out to by someone um, asking me for money and you know, I, I'll agree to a coffee or something and they'll tell me a story about the, their nonprofit. And all of a sudden I never realized how much I cared about what they're doing. Right. And I'm like, yes, I didn't, I had no idea this was an issue, but yes, I want to help with that. Yes. I want to fix that. Like, and the pride and excitement that I felt from that, like I also get something from that experience. And as a fundraiser, you are providing other individuals on a consistent basis, an opportunity to change the world to make a substantive difference in the lives of other people, whether or not it's, you know, in their own neighborhood or across the world. Like, you're giving them a chance, and every ask you don't make from someone, every time you don't send that email or don't make that call to ask someone to invest in your cause, you're taking an opportunity away from them to invest in it and to feel like they're actually making a difference. I think we can wrap right there. I think that, I think you just nailed it <laughs> on its head. No, I'm just kidding. But no, but absolutely, right? It's super inspiring when you think about it and you can sort of switch the framing in your head from being like, ooh, fundraising is this scary thing to this idea of like, no, it's just an avenue in which folks can make an impact, right? It's a, just a different avenue. And if you think about it the same, it, it may make it a little bit easier. So as, as you get to the ask part, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, right? You're, you finally get there and you're going to make the ask for a specific amount of money, right? What are some key components that fundraisers should include when they're making that ask? I mean, you already said one of the most important words, which is specific. <laughs> I think a lot of us, you know, um, I can't remember the last time I had a call or I mean, I can't remember the last time I had a meeting period because, you know, with COVID times, but like, I can't remember the last time I had a, a meeting in which I was going to make an ask that I didn't know beforehand specifically what I was going to be asking for. So, you know, I mean, I raised for a C3, a C4, you know, a, so a nonprofit, an advocacy organization, a super PAC, I raised for candidates. Like, I rarely ever go into a meeting or a conversation without knowing specifically what my goal is to ask, right? Even though that might not be what they ultimately give, I have a very clear picture in my head of that. And I also think that it's important to have a couple backups, right? You know, if you're going to ask somebody for, let's just say like $5,000, like that might be the first ask and they might say no, 
So it's important to, you know, $5,000 might have not been the right ask. It might be the right ask, but it might be the first time and they're just really not sure. They might have a financial situation, whatever it might be, but it's important to then have a specific second ask. Well, can you do $2,500? Well, do you know a few people who might be interested in contributing? You know, do you know anyone who might be able to contribute $5,000 or five people who might be able to contribute $1,000? So you talked a little bit about, right, like personal ask, individual ask. You set up a meeting with an individual donor or supporter, right, to ask for money. What are some other different ways that advocacy organizations, campaigns could raise money for their for their organizations or their cause? There are so many ways, <laughs> and I think one of the um, one of the challenges a lot of um, organizations and fundraisers have is that they think very um, they're too narrowly about what fundraising is and how it's done, and they assume that it is all meetings or a call, right? It, when in reality, like most nonprofits have what we call like revenue streams, whether it's email, texting, snail mail, um, yes, meetings, uh, calls. Um, there are events. Events are huge, right? Like there are so many different ways. And I think um, any successful nonprofit is going to try to diversify their revenue streams in several different areas, have strategies for each, regardless of what size the organization is. Allowing that diversification of revenue from different places, whether it's events and meetings and email, let's just say those three, right? Allows you to kind of stabilize your budget and your revenue for the organization in a way that allows you to get a little bit more creative and expand, right? When you put all of your eggs into one basket, I mean, imagine in COVID times, an organization that funds 90% of its annual operating budget based off of events. Where is that organization today, <laughs> right? I mean, they are, they are struggling. They've laid off people like they're, you know, having a really hard time, but having diversity allows that, you know, while they've been building up all of these different revenue streams, they're able to experiment in different ways during these strange COVID, you know, fundraising environment and find ways to make up for that deficit. You know, I think as an example right now, um, you know, the other night um, I, I work with a lot of uh, major donors and we had a um, major donor social Right. And it was it was not the sort of, you know, we have events throughout the year all the time, generally, but we haven't had a lot <laughs> since COVID started. And as a result, you know, we find that not all of our major donors want, you know, to socialize with one another. A lot of them don't. You know, some people, they want to write a check. Some people just want to call once a year or a couple times a year, maybe want an email with, you know, a white paper on, you know, different things the organization's working on. Um, but, you know, we had 20 people on a call the other night, um, which is a very high number considering the small universe of people that we invited to it. And they loved it. And these are these are folks who wanted to be social, you know, and that's that in of itself is meeting the donors where they are um, and providing some value for them beyond just asking them for money. Um, and donors, supporters, they care when they see that you're investing time and energy and that you care. Right. So. Even if you're sending an invitation, them an invitation for an event that they don't want to come to or they're not interested in, people appreciate the invitation. <laughs> people appreciate the effort that you're putting into it. And they put something together in case they do want to join. I wasn't going to be invited. I mean, I wasn't going to go, but I wanted to be invited. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. 
<laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't have the opportunity to say no. I wouldn't exactly. I wouldn't have the opportunity to not show. No, exactly. But but right, you're. They're not ATM machines, right? You're treating them as actual human beings, like they're exactly. actual people who you you are building these relationships with. Which uh, sort of takes me to my next topic here around. As listeners are building out a fundraising plan, which is what you're talking about, as you're thinking about different streams of revenue, how you're doing research on your donors, right? Are there other key components that they should be thinking about as they're building out a fundraising plan and, and trying to achieve their goals? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first big thing is budget, right? I mean, the question is, what are you trying to accomplish and what will it cost? Right. I think um, a lot of people, they might start from the perspective of like, well, what can I raise? And like, let's just define what I can do with the amount of money that I'm able to raise. Right. But a lot of times when you're starting out on an initiative or an organization, like you don't actually know what you're going to be able to raise. So you need to have some sort of a vision and the vision is what you're able to sell. Um, so I think having, putting together some sort of a budget and having subsequent budgets. Um, the second is of course the fundraising plan itself, <laughs> right? Which also should be a part of the budget because it costs money to raise money, right? What do you, how much are you trying to raise? Um, where are you going to raise it from? How much can you raise from the different revenue streams? How can you make those consistent and who else can you bring in to help you with it? So we talked about this a little bit in terms of relationships with donors and those being super critical to the success of your fundraising career, I would imagine. Um, any tips for our listeners as they're thinking about best ways to build those relationships with their donors and supporters? Yeah, I mean, um, relationships are key. And, you know, people will invest in you as much as you invest in them. And they'll do so to their own ability, just like you do so to your own ability. Um, so I think it's important to legitimately be interested, <laughs> genuinely be interested in learning about the donor, learning about their lived experience, learn about what they care about, ask them questions. Um, from a cynical side of things, people like talking about themselves, <laughs> right? But like from a purely like human perspective, like people like getting to learn about each other and find opportunities to connect and like figure out what shared interests they have. And like, so make sure that you ask questions and allow yourself to be vulnerable. Like allow yourself to like talk about your lived experience and why this organization is important to you. I also think that um, building trust is one of the hardest things to do, especially with, um, you know, when you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're making an ask and they think that, Oh, this person just thinks I'm an ATM. They just want the money. They're going to be gone. Like, so Again, lead with the vulnerability. And when they ask you a question, be direct. Answer it. Don't talk around it. Don't try to come up with, you know, extravagant, you know, workarounds to try to make them think that you've answered the question. Be direct. Be vulnerable. Tell them, like, I don't know the answer, but let me, please give me the opportunity to come back to you. Right? And I think that being that honest with someone, I both, I think it's a sign of respect. I think it builds trust. Um, and you're more likely to continue building the relationship because of that. Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying these things, right, about being vulnerable and telling your personal story and doing your research, right, it, it's all things that we talk about in other episodes in terms of how do you tell your personal story and use storytelling, right? How do you do targeting in data in terms of who you should be communicating with, whether it's community organizing or legislative action? And it's it's those same fundamentals that you adapt to fundraising, right, to still be effective um, relationship building, et cetera. Um, you've mentioned this a couple of times, right? As we live in the land of COVID now and, and are still sort of trying to navigate and figure out what that means for what our new reality is going to be. 
obviously the fundraising world has changed as has everything else since the pandemic started. Are there ways in creative ways in which you all have adapted and which you've thought about things that organizations should be thinking about as they adapt to these changes? Yeah. Um, I think my first thought when all this was happening, when all this kind of started and we weren't really sure where it was going to go was how do we, how do we keep the folks who've been investing with us the longest? Right. How do we show them that um, we appreciate their support? We respect the investment they've made in the organization. Um, and how do we keep them? Because, you know, finding new people to support a cause is expensive, right? It takes a lot of time and energy. And when, you know, I mean, nonprofits across the board have seen a decline in funding since the pandemic started. And it's really hard for organizations. So who are the folks you are going to look to? You're going to look to your core supporters, the people who've been there for the longest. And I think that, you know, our natural inclination is going to be to ask them for a lot more money or ask all of these other people for money and focus on like all of the new dollars, right? But you need to focus on the fundamentals and know that, you know, these people have invested with you for a long time for a reason. So make them feel valued and appreciated. Um, I think that that's the big, the biggest thing. You know, we also, you have, in this moment, you'll have donors who may have supported you for a long time, but they've hit hard times. A lot of folks have. Um, and I think it's leading with empathy, you know, saying, thank you so much for your support. We understand that you can't, you know, contribute right now. Like, would you mind if I reached out in a few months to see if things have changed? Right. And, you know, and in the meantime, you know, please don't worry about it. Like, we're going to keep you on the books. Like, we will still invite you to things. Like, please, we're not here to provide you any stress. I just want to let you know how much we appreciate you. And I hope you'll give us the opportunity to ask if you can continue your support in a few months. Right. So that's, that's just one perspective, I think, to go into it with. And I think that this is, if ever there were a moment to be creative when it comes to fundraising, this is it, right? I mean, we had a major donor social on Zoom, right? Like, I will tell you, when we first started, when everything shut down, there were all these Zoom happy hours and stuff, and we I got Zoomed out. I was so over it, so done, didn't like it, right? It's been a few months now. I think people have been able to kind of rein it in a bit. And you know, people, these folks hadn't seen each other in so long, you know, and they're used to seeing each other at least a few times a year, and they loved it. Well, thank you, Joe, for joining us on this episode. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm sure. I hope the listeners got as much out of your experience and your expertise and your insights as I did. Um, and if you want to learn more about the work that Joe is doing over the Human Rights Campaign, we'll put that in the episode notes. Um, and so, Please reach out if you have any other questions in, uh, as it regard to advocacy fundraising, but uh, we'll be right back. And we're back. That was a great interview. Um, some of the things that Joe talked about, which I think are critical to fundraising, is you really want to think about having, if you're hiring a fundraiser, a fundraiser that understands the cause and wants to dedicate themselves to it and really can engage with it personally. You need to understand that fundraising is is both a science and an art, and it's an important tactic that you ask for money in a real compelling way. Um, fundraising can lead to substantial change in an organization. It can lead to substantial change in a community. And you need to be, it needs to be viewed as an invitation to invest in a movement. 
And it's important to have a first and a second ask planned as you're asking people for money. Definitely. I mean, you heard it from Joe, but I there are so many different ways in which you can fundraise outside of in-person events, right? And And you should be thinking creatively about what those look like. Is it doing a wine tasting? Is it doing a uh, bingo night or a trivia night online, right? Like, what are ways in which you can engage in the digital space um, that you can still continue to raise money even under a pandemic? I think one of the other important things that Joe mentioned, right, is how do you think constantly about diversifying your revenue streams? You want to be thinking about, right, philanthropic donating grants, right, have that pocket of money. Individual donors um, who are do- who are low dollar donors who may be coming in through virtual events, prior in-person events, email asks, et cetera, um, as well as big and larger in- individual donors who are giving you the $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 personal checks, right? And so be thinking about a ways in which you have different pockets of money just in case one of those pockets dries up. Um, you don't want your organization to have, again, put all of their eggs in one basket. And so think about different ways in which you can diversify your revenue stream. I mean, it doesn't really matter the number of people you have dedicated to fundraising in your organization. Even if you have one person who is doing fundraising, there are different easy ways that they can incorporate different methods to bring in resources to your campaign, to your organization, to the efforts that you're doing. Yeah. And again, back to the original point you made, which is people still want to be social, just socially distant, right? So think of those unique Zoom ideas. Drop us a note. If you want ideas for a Zoom, I'm sure that Martine and I can come up with a couple for you. But you need to keep people updated on what is going on, keep them informed. Um, That can help with like an email back and forth and frankly, donations through email. And although people may not be in an economic position to donate right now, when you keep them in the loop and you give them other things to do, they will come back to you. So you just need to keep that communication going and you need to give people the opportunity to say no. No, I can't give now, but maybe later. No, I can't give that much, but I can give a little less or I can do a monthly gift over time. Um, No, I can't give money, but I can give my time. Those are things that can be really important. Definitely, right? And remember the rat method, reason, amount, and time. The more specific that you can be in terms of making your ask to a donor based on the research you've done on them and what you know about them, the higher the likelihood is they're going to invest in the vision, in the campaign, in the effort that you're running, right? So think about who those folks are so that you can continue to build those relationships, right? Relationships are going to be key, particularly in fundraising, um, to build them long-term so that they're not just giving once, but they become maybe a monthly donor. They become a donor who you can rely on um, campaign after campaign, effort after effort, who understand the long-term investment in the work that you all are doing. And that's only going to be built through maintaining those relationships, keeping folks informed and understanding who the donor is and why they are giving. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening in. If you have specific questions or not specific questions, let us know. We're happy to chat with you about fundraising and we'd love to hear more from you. Contact us using the social media and email addresses in the description. 
Definitely. And on our next episode, we're really excited to be talking to a dear friend of ours, Katie Ballinger, about what happens when advocacy goes wrong. Dun, dun, dun. We'll discuss how to prevent your advocacy campaign from going off the rails and what to do if it does. So be sure to tune into that episode. Until next time, this is Joe Fold. And this is Martin Diego Garcia, breaking down how to win an advocacy campaign. How to Win an Advocacy Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Hope Rohrbach, Daniel Lamb, Heidi Jove, and Elena Veach. Music by Mike Pinto, sound editing by the Global Startup Movement. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Remember to review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.